The unusual. The paranormal. The mysterious. It's the All Things Strange podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Ether and Agent Anderson. A special thank you tonight to our Patreon subscribers. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review wherever you listen and recommend us to your family and friends. You can find the show live on Discord, and we have a group on Facebook. Links in the description. On the link tree. This week's episode, Living Dinosaurs. (laughs) Not real dinosaurs? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Otherwise known as Not The Mama. (laughs) So this is great. Our uh, Facebook group, I put up a poll and they voted and overwhelmingly asked for another cryptid episode. Yeah. And we put it to the vote on our Patreon where you can vote for upcoming topics at the top tier. And the middle tier will get you bonus episodes and the bottom tier gets you early access and after hours. That's cumulative. So they all get, you know, as you go up, whatever, you understand. So, <laughs> so uh, they voted on this topic, and it was actually a tie between this and from the files of Project Blue Book. So we decided to do this one first because it's a cryptid episode, and people have asked us to do more cryptid stuff. So if you'd like to hear early access, we're actually a couple weeks ahead, but if you want to hear this as it comes out when I'm done editing it and not have to wait a couple weeks, go ahead and sign up for our, uh, our Patreon there. And we would really appreciate it so we can buy things like the new mic stand. Yes, we just got Ether, a brand new mic stand. Very exciting stuff. It's the Rolls Royce of microphone stands. <laughs> Didn't we already talk about this? We did, so let's move along. Yeah, let's do it. So I just wanted to mention before we get started that they took a couple polls in the Americas. I, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in America, in one poll, a third of Americans think that dinosaurs and people existed at the same time, and in a different poll... of Americans think that dinosaurs actually still exist. Hmm. That's a lot. It's more than I I would have expected. I did see the documentary called Dinosaurs on TV about a family of dinosaurs. Is this the sitcom? (laughs) Yes, it is. The dinosaur sitcom with animatronics? No, they're real dinosaurs. Oh, with real dinosaurs. Real dinosaurs. That's why it's called dinosaurs. You know, the little baby dinosaur says, not the mama, you know. I didn't watch much of it when I was a kid. I wasn't really into it, but I know some people tuned in for every episode. It was a really fun show. It's It was kind of like Married with Children, but uh, with dinosaurs, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have the put upon dad who's can never seem to make things right. And then, you know, you have the, the mom who's usually the... Um, the calm in the middle of the storm kind of a thing. Weren't there humans too in the episodes? Yeah. And they were actually wild feral animals or pets sometimes, (laughs) but they did not have the technology. The dinosaurs had televisions and. I remember they had like refrigerator and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Dad was always in the fridge. Yeah. Oh yeah. The the dad was uh, more of a Peter Griffin type of a dad, if you know what I mean. But here's a line from the show. I I thought it was uh, pretty amusing. The wife, Fran says, how much can a tutor cost, Earl? And then Earl, the, the father, says, the same amount as a 90-inch TV screen because that's what my, the, 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 because that's the way my life works. So I thought, you know, that just gives you an idea of how the show is. It's a silly show. It's a lot of fun. And I recommend it if you want to see some really old TV. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how well it's held up to over time. I'm sure it's just as ridiculous as it was back then. So let's talk a little bit about dinosaurs. Yeah, so you mentioned some people think that dinosaurs are still around today. Well, there are definitely descendants of dinosaurs. That's that's an absolute fact. For example, can you think, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of descendant of dinosaur? Like T-Rex, raptors. Crocodiles. Crocodiles, yeah, that's good. The first thing that comes to mind for me is... chickens. (laughs) (laughs) The problem, so I'm all into evolution, fine. Dinosaurs were so big, so big, and now everything's so small. Yeah. And they had tiny little brains, and then everything else now has really big brains, and just the switcheroo really blows my mind. Yeah, how do you get from a T-Rex to a chicken? That doesn't 
makes sense. I right, right. And it has to do, of course, with the uh, mass extinction event. Right. Well, by descendants of dinosaurs, we don't necessarily mean direct descendants of T-Rexes. Like the chickens were probably descended from a much smaller animal. There was a lot of different sizes of dinosaurs. So we're just being silly with that. We're not really that dumb. (laughs) (laughs) In case anybody out there is rolling their eyes and being like, you know, chickens weren't descended from T-Rexes. I know that email's coming. (laughs) We always get the, one of my favorite ones, we've got several people emailed me about um, Africa being a continent, not a country. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, who said that? Did I say that? I can't even remember. Somebody said it. I can't even remember. We we goof around on this show sometimes. You also you have a slip of the tongue. You know, you're trying yeah. to think about what you want to say, and you're reading your notes, and you're interacting with other hosts. It's tricky business. Sometimes you use the wrong word. It's not a big deal, guys. <laughs> like country instead of continent. That's that's silly. I hope it wasn't me. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but just, just relax a little, guys. Don't take everything we say. As the gospel, because sometimes we make mistakes too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyways, chickens, there's also sea turtles, as you said, crocodiles, snakes, ostriches, sharks, crustaceans, bees, lizards, and more, like birds. A lot of these things were either around back then or their descendants are still around. And we're using the term dinosaur loosely, I suppose you could say. Some of these things are directly descended from dinosaurs. Others were descended from things that you might not consider to be dinosaurs, like bees and crustaceans, but they were around back then, and they're still around today. Yeah, I guess this uh, mass extinction event, which people argue, some say it was an asteroid, but now some people say it was a volcano. Yeah, or... Or it could have been aliens. Or aliens, or aliens. But it caused, it was about 66 million years ago, and it caused a collapse of the food chain. And because of the way in which food, water was no longer available to the dinosaurs, you really had very specific groups of animals that would survive this event. And really, those are the descendants. Well, it makes sense that only the smaller animals would survive because they need less food to survive. Right? I suppose that might be true. I'm not I'm not sure. I just know well, dinosaurs needed sun and warm and like tropical weather. And then you have like this ice age come in and it's like the situation, you know, that wasn't there for dinosaurs to survive. Like we were just at uh, Discovery Kingdom earlier today. What did the trainer say that the tiger, how much meat did the tiger need every oh, week? I don't know. An insane amount. Like, what was this 50 or 500 or something? I don't know. Probably not 500, but... It was, yeah, it was an insane amount of meat. And that's just for an itty-bitty little tiger. Well, they weren't itty-bitty. This tiger we saw was like nine feet when it was like stretched out. They had it like jump up on the fence and it was like taller than the trainer and 300 pounds of just pure flesh and muscle. And you're like, wow. 500 pounds in the winter. 500 in the winter. Yeah. They really pack on the weight in the winter. As it was really big, but compared to a T-Rex, it's just a little bitty guy. Oh, a little bitty kitty. A little bitty guy. So if that little bitty guy needs a ton of meat, you know, like 50, well, I think it might've been 50 pounds. I don't know, whatever. I'd have to look it up, but it was a big number. So imagine what a T-Rex would need to eat to survive, right? Yes. A lot. Yes. So we have also in not just descendants, but actual dinosaurs that are still there. And we have a fair number of witnesses and we're going to call these cryptids because that's kind of what they are. But there are people who say they are still out there. That's very true. This reminds me, I posted this on Facebook. There's this tiny little lizard, and it looks like a dragon. It has little wings, and it like uh, it's kind of like a flying squirrel, but a lizard. And it Weird. looks like a dragon. I know. I love it. Only it's tiny, and I kind of want one as a pet, so I can say I have a pet dragon. Yeah. So did, did you want to go first, Agent Ether? Yeah. So in Australia, you have a lot of outback that's been unexplored. And I don't know, for some reason, when I think about Australia, I think about it as a smaller continent. And I don't know if that's just, you know, my own bias or because I think of the Americas as being so big. But there's actually a lot of unexplored areas in Australia. Australia is friggin' huge. Right, it is. I don't know why in my head I, I was, I don't know. I was looking at it on a map and like reading about it. And I was like, oh, oh. So there could be a cryptid roaming around, maybe. Well, if you look at some of the other bizarre things that live in Australia, there's absolutely got to be some really completely 
utterly bizarre creature that we haven't discovered yet. Has to be. And so people have had repeated sightings of this creature, a cryptid that looks not entirely unlike a T-Rex. And they call it the Brunjor. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And it's 20 to 25 feet long when it stands on two legs. It has small little arms and clawed hands. It Hmm. first started being sighted in the 1950s because cattle ranchers said this cryptid was eating their livestock, leaving behind three-toed tracks. Interesting. But they didn't think it was crocodiles because it did not drag them off into the water, which I guess is crocodile behavior. Mm -hmm. But it's older than that. There are actually, among the Aboriginal Australians, cave paintings of these creatures. No kidding. That actually, so there's no way that whoever painted those cave paintings was colluding with modern witnesses to fabricate a story. That's actually a really compelling piece of information. Yeah, I found it fascinating. Not only that, though, they have, you know, their own stories as well about about this cryptid. Mm-hmm. So I just found that really fascinating. There wasn't a ton of information online that I that I could find, but that was just the little piece, and I wanted to share that with everybody because there is more than one type of dinosaur living cryptid out there. And that was that was one of them, the one in Australia. There's actually a bunch of them. There are a bunch of but, them. So I just wanted to pull up a picture here of a quokka. This lives in Australia. This is a okay. real. This is a real creature. I'm looking at a quokka. Now, look, if this thing exists, then anything is possible. Look at this. Okay, let me see. Oh, it's the happy thing. It's yeah. The, it's the little creature. It always looks like it's smiling. It do. It doesn't even look real. It's so ridiculous looking. It looks like a like a little plushie. Yeah, it's, or a cartoon. It's this thing is just so. If this thing's real, then anything could be real. Why not? You know. Now that's the animal that's really friendly towards humans, right? It'll come up, yeah, up to you and just eat out of your hand. And yeah, it has no no natural predators, which is unfortunate because I guarantee you there are people out there who are willing to you know take it away from its family and. No and raise it ship it across the world as an exotic pet which is like that little guy although I kind of want one I do I do too but that little guy is going to miss his family you know Yeah. just leave him leave him alone let them frolic in the wilderness and do their (laughs) thing you know we don't need to bother them they're not bothering us so just leave them alone go with a dog there's plenty of good dogs out there that are cute and need a good home so leave the quokas alone poor little quokas yeah well let's move on Okay. I wanted to talk about the Mokeli Mbembe. Oh, you got it. Okay. I got it. I actually had to practice this one. And not only that, but when I went online, because it's spelled so unusually to listen to how different people said it, Mm -hmm. everyone said it differently. Right. So I was like, I'm safe. I'm safe here. Yeah. You just say stuff and it'll be correct, I guess. Well, the language comes from the Congo River Basin, and I actually listened and saw some uh, videos of sightings by natives, and I could not. It's like French. You know how we can't pronounce French on this show? Right. I also could not mimic the way that they said this creature. Well, I think it's fair to say we can't really predict. uh, predict. We can't really pronounce anything on this show. I think that's fair. Yeah, that is is (laughs) gospel truth. So, Mokeli Mbembe. So... The Congo River Basin, specifically around the area of Ipinya in Central Africa, is where these creatures have been sighted. It's very swampy. It's marshy. You probably know it's a large rainforest. It gets up to 2,000 millimeters of rain in a year compared to an average of 700 in the U.S. and 500 in Australia. That's a lot. It's a lot of rain. It just rains and rains. And it's home to a lot of animals that we're also probably familiar with, hippopotamus, crocodiles, elephants, and maybe even something more rare, a dinosaur. A dinosaur. dinosaur. Yes, local tribes have spoken for centuries about a creature, and the name translates to one who stops the flow of the rivers. Hmm. Must be a big boy. Yeah, chunky boy. And some say it's a living creature. Others say it's a spirit animal. Hmm. So it's is it overlaps with like a mythology kind of a thing? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think so. And there's a lot of lore mm-hmm. surrounding it. The creature is said to be about the size of an elephant. So not huge. 
Right, not unreasonable. Not unreasonably. Yeah. And, and that makes sense because it needs to hide. So about the size of an elephant with a long, flexible neck and a small head. Sometimes it's described as having a single horn on its head. Hmm. It's an herbivore. It eats fauna and fruit, although sometimes it will attack larger animals, though not for food. It's just very territorial. Hmm, okay. It really hates hippos, apparently. I saw that cited several places. Well, hippos, I mean, that's like, that's, they're almost worse than bears. I mean, but I feel like if it's going against a hippo, yeah, that is one ferocious creature. Right, nobody messes with hippos. Which means <laughs> nobody wants to mess with the Mokeli Mbembe. Yeah, I bet. I mean... That's, so, you know how yeah. strong you know how strong something would have to be to beat a hippo. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> to kill a hippo, I know. Yeah. So the creature is brown, gray, or brick red in color, depending on who you're talking to, with smooth, hairless skin. It spends a lot of time in the water hiding like a hippopotamus. And when it surfaces, it's just its head and neck coming above the water as it swims. That's usually. It has been sighted above the water as well. They're often seen just as a single creature, but if they're seen more than one, it's in a pair like male and female. Hmm, okay. Local lore has it that the creature is very quiet and does not vocalize. Well, everything vocalizes. Yeah, but this is going to be important later on when I'm discussing some of the sightings that have happened. Oh, okay. okay. So keep in mind that local lore says they don't vocalize. Sea lions vocalize. Yes. And they're very cute when they do it. <laughs> a lot of things vocalize. <laughs> so a little bit about uh, the early history and expeditions to the Congo. Most of what we know about this creature in the West started with German explorers. So we have an abbot, uh, I hate names, Levin Bonaventure Poyart. In the 1800s, he wrote, the missionaries observed passing along a forest, the trail of an animal, which was not seen, but which must have been monstrous. The marks of the claws were noted on the ground, and they formed a print about three feet in circumference. Dang. The arrangement of the impressions indicated that the animal was walking, not running, the distance between the footprints measured seven to eight feet. Wow, that's a that's quite the stride there. So that's the first sort of writing we have that hints that there's some sort of creature out there lurking in the rainforests. That's I mean, that sounds pretty compelling to me. Later, this local folklore was reported by General Officer Ludwig von Stein back in the 1900s. That sounds like a made-up name, by the way. Ludwig von Stein. <laughs> so, there were actually more <laughs> names. That's just like part of his name. And I'm yeah. like, I'm not saying five names on the show that are all in German. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like something from a movie. So Ludwig sent some letters to a naturalist, his friend, who published them in a book he was writing on dragons. Ooh. I know. And he put the name in the book and it kind of stuck. It became uh, well-known from this, from this book. After World War I, Cameroon, the area where these creatures had been sighted, was divided between the French and the British, and the French got the area where the Mokeli Mbembe was being sighted. Hmm. You have French anthropologist Pierre Alexandre, and he was told by a group of native people that they were there that there were multiple sightings at the time, but they're all secondhand accounts. So nobody had seen the the creature themselves. They were all telling stories of how they knew people who had seen the creature. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And he was told that they refused to take their canoes out on the open water of this specific river because the creature liked to overturn them. Hmm, that's a theme that we'll see in a little bit later on, too. The animal was described as having a long neck, a head like a big turtle, and hard or scaly skin being smaller than an elephant. It lived in deep water and came out at night and sometimes would attack people because it was territorial but did not eat them. Hmm. In the mid-1900s, Dr. Pierre Noyen was stationed in French Equatorial Africa, and he has a statement here that he wrote, 
according to the tradition transmitted by the parents of the parents in these swamps of Lake Tilly, would live a beast that looks like an enormous pangolin. They told me that if it crossed the arm of the Lucula o Erbis at post Tipinia, its tail would still drag on the shore as its head and its forelegs would have reached the opposite bank, which would give it a length of 20 meters. 20 meters, what is that, like approximately 60 feet? It's big. That's huge. Yeah, it is pretty big. Now, if you want to look at more modern times, there's two big names that come up first. One is Roy Mackle. He's a biologist and cryptozoologist, or was, he passed. And he was a genuine professor. Unlike Hmm. some people whose names will go unmentioned on the show, who are cryptozoologists who uh, go to universities specifically for cryptozoology, which aren't recognized among the scientific community. Do they offer that program at Harvard? (laughs) This guy was a genuine professor. He had tenure at the University of Chicago, where he and his partner were the first to grow viruses outside of living cells. Huh. So I imagine the first thing he did when he got tenure was to go outside of the parking lot and flip everybody off and go, fuck you, it's time for the cryptids, bitches. Pretty much. <laughs> they couldn't do much. Like, he was definitely ostracized by his community, but what are they going to do? He had tenure. And just yeah. like today... Back then, tenure means they're stuck with you. Such a strange arrangement for professors because, at least in the United States, like it's really hard to get tenure chip. But once you get it, it's you're like a, in there. It's a lifetime thing. It's incredibly difficult to fire somebody with tenure chip. It's uh, sort of like a lifetime contract, and then that's when the professors, some of them, become extremely lazy, <laughs> <laughs> or they go to Scotland join a team looking for Nessie and become super passionate about the subject while being known for also being very scientific about it. Well, it sounds like he had some really good scientific accomplishments, though. Yes, yes, he did. Now, he met up with, and I was not clear how the two met, James Powell, who was a uh, went to Africa actually to study crocodiles. Hmm. And then he became interested in cryptids, specifically living dinosaurs. That guy's a total psycho. Why would anybody, why would you want to be anywhere near a crocodile? I don't know. They're kind of interesting. They're living dinosaurs, kind of. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to study them. So in the, the uh, in 1980, and again in 1981, they would travel to the north, to the Republic of Congo, to collect data. Now, this is Blew my mind. The second time they went, they were funded by the National Geographic. Really? Yeah. Like like the magazine? Yeah. Huh. No kidding. Go figure. Okay. Um, But they weren't going to like capture the creature or take photos. The reason they were going was to collect accounts of the Mokeli Mbembe. Did they shoot at anything? Because it seems to be the first thing anybody does when they see a cryptid <laughs> is to shoot it. No, and, and this, that's <laughs> what makes this expedition different, I think, yeah. from similar expeditions. And that's probably why it was funded is because they were going to collect data. Right, yeah. So it was, a, it was a little different. Now, they worked with an American missionary, Pastor Eugene Thomas, and he claimed to have sighted the creature twice. And he was the first person to recount a story about one being killed near Lake Tilly back in 1959, which I'll talk about in a little bit. So maybe the two met through this pastor, maybe not. One thing that was interesting as as this group, as this expedition traveled through the Congo and met different people, the locals, they would identify the Mokeli Mbembe by showing them pictures of seropods. So they would like draw it or the natives would draw the Mokeli Mbembe for them. And and it did. It looked like a dinosaur. And as they went and moved towards swampy areas more north in the country in the vicinity of Epina, more current stories would pop up, some more recent stories, and the visuals would be more more strongly associated with those regions. So they felt like they were closing in on the areas where it might dwell. That's a really interesting way of tracking the thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Now, they got together with somebody uh, 
Raguster. And at first they worked together and then somehow they had a falling out and they became a rival expedition. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had multiple expeditions doing the same thing, collecting information in the Congo at the same time. I feel like we need a sitcom about this. <laughs> well, it gets it gets interesting. So in September of 18 September of 1981, Register and his group would reach Lake Telly. And there he claimed his expedition had multiple sightings and he produced low-quality photographs and sound recordings as corroboration. Hmm. Now, I've seen these photographs and they are not as good as the Loch Ness Monster. So they're they're kind of not very good. They're not very good. Have you heard the sound recordings? I have not, but I have a quote about it. Okay. So at 11.45 on November 4th, as Kia and I investigated the southernmost lobe of the lake, an extraordinary and loud animal cry was heard. It came from the jungle along the shore of the lobe and seemed to be more than 40 or 50 meters into the thicket. The cry can best be described as starting with a low, windy roar, then increasing to a deep-throated, trumpeting growl. Sounds of a large beast making through the bush were clearly distinguishable as it moved away from us further into the swamp. The roar recurred again in about five minutes and then was not heard again. The Congolese attributed its source to the Mokelium Bembe. Attempts to record the sound on several occasions resulted only in rather poor quality productions owing to the high level of foreground noises. Aww. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, it's actually fairly difficult to record something, especially something in the distance. This was controversial, however, because, as I mentioned before, the locals said the creature rarely vocalized. Right, like you were saying. So... Either they were hearing something completely different, or it was a hoax. Or it was one of the rare occasions that it did vocalize. Right, yeah. So it could have been any of these things. I recently heard an audio recording on, I don't even remember where, I was just digging through, you know, these forums or whatever like I do. And I heard a recording, I'm like, oh, sweet, a Bigfoot recording. And it kind of just sounds like a guy yelling in the distance, (laughs) you know? Awesome. I mean, there's any number of possibilities as far as... What could produce a particular sound? It could be hoaxed. It could be natural. It could be anything. So in 1983 was an actual local investigation by the Congo Ministry of Water and Forests, and it lasted two months. Hmm. It was led by a Congonese zoologist, Marcelin Agnagna, who would claim to see the creature twice and try to film it unsuccessfully. So... Agnagna claims he was filming monkeys when he caught the animal on film. However, the lens cap was still on and he ran out of film. So this is what he says. I tried to film the animal, but the film was almost finished because I had been filming monkeys. Also, there are different settings on the camera and I had it set to macro by mistake. So when I looked through the viewfinder, I couldn't see anything, but I started filming anyway. By the time I realized my mistake and corrected it, the film was finished. So he ran off, he got his 35 millimeter camera, and what he had at the end were several low-resolution photographs. All I have to say to that is, of course. (laughs) So sad. (laughs) Of course he didn't get good film of it, because that's just how these things work, right? There were also a fair amount of Japanese expeditions led by him in the 19. 80s and the expeditions then focused on finding the creature not just gathering information but no encounters were made boo i know so after 2000 you have names like bill gibbons creationist dave voitzel voitzel and they traveled to south eastern Cameroon, where informants would pick out the seropod dinosaur as being a representative of the Mbembe. So the people don't think it's unusual, but they do fear it because of its ferocity in attacking hippos, elephants, and even crocodiles. Now, they were joined by a French cryptozoologist, Michael Ballot, who would lead yearly expeditions from 2004 until, I think, 2017, when they had to stop due to civil war, to uh, collect continuous accounts from everyone from local fishermen to park rangers. Interesting. 
Did, where did they collect these? Are they available online? I have some sightings for you. Oh, awesome. I know. I have some information. Now, so what they would do is they would go out to these areas, to these regions, and have the natives, have the locals recount maybe stories that they heard from their fathers or grandfathers or stories in their families. Hmm. And they would they would collect the stories or more recent sightings. Right. Did they find any that were very recent? So I'll go through some sightings. Um, sometime between 1924 and 1933, Robert Luhard, a telecommunications engineer near Lake Telly. I thought you were about to say a telekinesis practitioner. Yes. <laughs> no, a telecommunications engineer saw a crocodile fighting with a large animal. The animal had a long tail and neck and was around 10 meters long. I think it means the neck was 10 meters long. And later, I guess this this guy, Robert, would take his children and grandchildren to see the Diplodocus skeleton in Paris, which is a dinosaur. Right. (laughs) Which he said looked exactly like the creature. So the creature looked like a skeleton? Looked like a dinosaur. Oh, like a, okay. Yes. I thought we were talking about a skeleton out there walking around. That would be scary. No. (laughs) You're so ridiculous. You look like the dinosaur. So this was a story that had been passed down among several generations. And this is the retelling of that story. In 1932, there was an expedition to West Africa with Ivan Sanderson. And he wrote a letter to a friend, Bernard Heuvelman's describing vast hippo-like tracks, trampled grass near a camp, and then a few months later, he recounted seeing a giant animal in the water while canoeing. So his friend, Heuvelman's, asked another one from the expedition named Russell if it was true, and he said, it's like Ivan tells it. But he wasn't convinced, because I guess his friend was given to tall tales. Yeah, I know the type. (laughs) I wouldn't believe his friend either. So we have a couple of other miscellaneous sightings. And then I had one where I really enjoyed the story I wanted to share with you guys. So this was back in 1948 or 1949 is the recounting of a Douala security officer, Ari, in Lake Marambi Mabo. He says... It was about 1949, and I was four or five. I was swimming with my friends in Lake Marombi Mabo in Kumba. While we were swimming, the water in the middle of the lake started to boil, so we ran out of the water onto the shore. The British soldiers who were swimming there ran up onto the cement pier they had built for diving. Then the smaller female animal appeared. A few minutes later, the larger male came up. They were about 200 yards away from us. When the animals appeared, the British men ran up the steps from the pier and away from the lake. We yelled at them to stop, but they ran all the same. So I'd like to pause here. These kids were four or five years old, (laughs) and these British men, I think they were soldiers, just took off. Like, yeah, oh, well. Yeah. (laughs) See ya. Peace out, kids. Have fun. So he goes on to recap. Recount that the male animal had a neck that stretched perhaps 12 or 15 feet above the water. The skin was like a viper, smooth scales that would not go up if you rubbed them the wrong way as a fish's do. The head of the male was about two feet long. At the back of the head of both animals was a corn or cap about eight inches long. The head is carried above the water as a viper's, like a cobra. The neck is slightly curved to balance the head. The neck tapers just like a snake's. In fact, that part of the animal which is visible above the water appears in every way to look like a huge snake. So then he says he watched it for about an hour. I would have taken off at this point, but they're hanging out. They watched him for about an hour. All the time I watched them, I was trembling, and I continued to tremble for some time after they went down. Hmm. They went down, female first, then a male a few minutes later. They say that this is how the animals always act. The female always comes up first and always goes down first. Now, how do they know which one's the female? Do they, like, 
I'm assuming it's smaller, but I don't know. Did, did one of them have like a couple of balls or something? Yeah, but they're under the water. So how yeah. can you tell if they're under the water? Maybe maybe the male had like some big giant boulders down there. Maybe they're different in coloring. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe they can just tell. Maybe they just assumed. And then another interesting story that I found was in 1959, a fisherman from the lake named Mateka Pascal recalled hearing about the killing of a very large animal by pygmies when he was a child. Okay. So he heard the story, didn't witness it, and it was an old story because he heard when he was he was a kid. The Mokelium Bembe had been entering Lake Tili from the Moliba in which it lived via one of the waterways, which entered the lake on its western side. After the animal entered the lake, the pygmies blocked off its waterway by constructing a barricade of large stakes across it. When the Mokelium Bembe tried to return to its Moliba, which I think means habitat, it was trapped by the barricade and killed with spears. Some of the stakes used to construct the trap were large tree trunks and are still there. The pygmies cut up the animal and ate it. All who no. ate of it died. The animal killed was said to be one of two. The other one, possibly a mate, is said to still be there, but has become very wary and difficult to approach. However, it will occasionally stick its neck out of the water to a height of about two meters. The real question is, did it taste good? Well, another story went like this. Different person. Around 1960, the forest-dwelling pygmies of the Lake Tili region, the Bangombe tribe, fish daily in the lake near the Molibos, or water channels, situated at the north end of the lake. These channels merged with the swamps and were used by the Mokelium Bembes to enter the lake where they would browse, browse, that must be a typo, where they would eat the vegetation. <laughs> they would browse the vegetation. <laughs> <laughs> this daily excursion into the lake by the animals disrupted the pygmies' fishing activities, so eventually the pygmies decided to erect a stake barrier across the Malibo in order to prevent the animals from entering the lake. When two of the animals were observed attempting to break through the barrier, the pygmies speared one of the animals to death and later cut it into pieces. This task apparently took several days due to the size of the animal, which was described as being bigger than a forest elephant with a long neck and a small snake-like or lizard-like head, which was decorated with a comb-like frill. The pygmy spearman also described a long, flexible tail, a smooth reddish-brown skin, and four stubby but powerful legs with clawed toes. Pastor Thomas mentioned that the two pygmies mimicked the cry of the animal as it was being attacked and speared. Later, a victory feast was held, during which parts of the animal were cooked and eaten. However, all of those who participated, all of those who participated in the feast eventually died. Hmm. So there you go. Weird. I know. And and there's other sightings. There's more, you know, modern sightings. Uh people would go through on these expeditions in the 2000s and they would they would interview people, but most of the sightings from then on out were I saw a shadowy creature, I was canoeing and something bubbled up from the surface. Um there was some big game trackers who said that they saw um, footprints, again, the expeditions themselves, people would claim to see the Mokeli Mbembe. Um, there's a couple of films, you know, stuff on YouTube now. And that's that's what I've got. That's what I've got on the Mokeli Mbembe. Well, that's really cool because you have a ton of sightings. It's it's not just like one guy saw it 100 years ago. You got a bunch of sightings of that. And I really narrowed down the notes I had and the places I looked and the interviews that I saw on YouTube. Like I really had to narrow down all this information because there's a lot out there, which is really interesting because I'd actually never heard of this cryptid before. Yeah, and just like you were saying with Australia, I'm not super familiar with the geography of Africa, but I imagine there are still plenty of places that have not really been all that well explored. Well, especially in the rainforest. Yeah, so there could be plenty of room for something like this thing to be kicking around, especially if it's like the size of a hippopotamus or, or an elephant. 
Or smaller sometimes. It's yeah. described as being smaller. Or than smaller. That. I mean, that's yeah. that's small enough to where it could evade detection if it lives in a remote area. So that's pretty exciting, actually, that there might be something like this out there. Yeah. All right. So I guess I'll get to the cryptids that I was talking about, that I wanted to talk about. Ether did the land cryptids, and I was doing the air cryptids. So it turns out that there are some people who have reported creatures that are similar to pterodactyls or in general, just pterosaurs that maybe not a pterodactyl, maybe a different size, but in general have that basic profile. You know what we're talking about. You a know, bat. Yeah, no. no. Like the, have you seen those fox bats? Yes, I have. They are huge. They have like a six foot wingspan. Those aren't bats. Those aren't foxes. I don't know what those are. Those are crazy looking, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but that's what the skeptics think that could possibly cause these sightings is some of these bats with a six-foot wingspan. If you'd never seen that before, you'd probably crap your pants. You know? I've seen pictures, and I almost crap my pants. They are definitely weird looking. They're fruit yeah. bats, though, aren't they? I don't, th- I don't think they're... Uh... Well, um, if they're that big, they definitely have to be vampire bats, right? <laughs> I don't think they are. I actually think they're fruit bats. Well, either way, they probably just suck the juices out of the fruit and leave them, you know, completely bleached out. Of <laughs> wait, wait, color. wait, wait. Wasn't there a book about this? Banicula? Bat, Batnicula. No, it was Banicula. And he was like a little vampire bunny, but he sucked like all the <laughs> fruit juice or something. Do you remember yeah. this when you were yeah, a kid? The, the kids would wake up in the morning and like the, all the vegetables in their fridge would be like sucked out of all the color and juice or whatever. Yeah. I remember <laughs> that. That was a long time ago. Yeah, it was a cute little book. But yeah, so anyway, so people have seen these things, the pterodactyl-like things. There's actually quite a lot of sightings pretty much all over the world. So I'm just going to narrow it down to a handful of sightings here because obviously, you know, you could do multiple episodes about this stuff just on the pterodactyl-looking things. So I'll start with the uh, Kongamatos. It's a pterosaur from a tropical and subtropical areas of Africa. We're talking about Zambia, Congo, and Angola. Maybe it hangs out with the Makole Mbembe sometimes. I bet it does. It probably perches right on his back. <laughs> he has a reddish lizard. It's like a reddish lizard with membranous wings and it has a beak with teeth. Oh, joy. That's, yeah, like a beak isn't bad enough, right? Witnesses have reported wingspans anywhere from four feet to 100 feet across, which, you know, if it was 100, that's like an airplane. It's like a dragon. (laughs) Yeah, like a dragon. There's no way that would be undetected. So I don't know if if that one is reasonable, but four feet seems a little more reasonable to you. Who knows? Anything's possible. The name itself means breaker of boats. I said I would get to this earlier. I said I would get to this later, remember? Because a lot of witnesses have reported being attacked while in their canoes and having those capsized. So that's why they call it the breaker of boats. I guess it attacks people in boats. People in the area, as Agent Ether said earlier for her cryptid, they showed people in the area a picture of a pterosaur. Well, they were were given a book full of animals and they asked them, okay, what does the Kongamato look like? And they flipped through and they pointed at the one that looked like a pterosaur or a pterodactyl. They said, that's what it looks like. Oh, and anybody who's curious to look up more information about this thing, because we are so good at pronouncing stuff, I'll spell it for you. K-O-N-G-A-M-A-T-O. Kongamato. So if you want to read more about that, how do you spell Macauliamembe? Uh, let's see. Uh-huh. Give me a moment. M-O-K-E-L-E-M-B-E-M-B-E. Okay. So that's, if you wanted to look those up, that's how you spell Mbembe. it. I practice saying it though. I think that's right. <laughs> Sounds close enough to me. <laughs> So it wasn't just people who lived in Africa or locals that had seen it, but also some Europeans saw it as well. For example, Frank Melland described one in his 1932 book, In Which Bound Africa. And I saw that title and I was like, I, I wasn't quite sure if that, if wit, calling Africa witch bound, is that, do you think that's like not PC either? Definitely not PC nowadays. Probably was PC back then. That this seems to me like kind of suggesting something or other. I'm not sure exactly what, but it seems like it's not necessarily a nice way of saying it. I don't know. Could be my imagination. <laughs> but either way, there was you know he had a description in his book. Um, as I said earlier, when Ether jumped jumped the gun a little bit, but I got excited. Yeah, the skeptics say that it's probably just a bat or that it's not real at all. But I say to them, good day, sir. 
because we're, we're talking about you know people Europeans from the early 1900s, and that's what that's how they talked back then, right? Exactly. That's Good exactly day to how you, talked. sir. Okay, so the general profile reported does match certain birds like herons or storks. So some skeptics also think that it could just be a heron or stork flying around at dusk, which is when these things are most often seen, which also so happens to coincide with the time period that bats may be active. So that's another reason why they think it may be bats. But the problem with the bird theory is that herons and storks have a suspicious amount of feathers. <laughs> so it's unlikely somebody would see a bird and then say, oh, it was this leathery lizard looking thing. But I guess anything's possible. So here's one account that I ran across. In one instance from the 1920s, a native boldly decided to penetrate past southern Rhodesian swamp traditionally deemed by his tribe to be the abode of demons from which no one who entered it ever returned alive and see for himself just what did inhabit this accursed realm. Happily, he did return alive, but only just, having been badly injured, resulting in a major chest wound. When a civil servant for the region asked him what had happened, the native told him that he had encountered a huge bird of a type that he had never seen before. With a long, sharp beak, shown a book of animal pictures, he flicked through it in a desultory manner until he came to an illustration of a pterodactyl, whereupon he let out a terrified shriek and ran out of the civil servant's house. Now, that that's a detail that kind of makes me not believe this so much. <laughs> It's very uh, dramatic. Very dramatic. If if you saw a, a picture, like, did this villager... It, is it also trying to say that these people are of lesser intelligence because they look at an illustration and think that it's going to come off the page and attack them? So many different ways to parse this. And for me, it's, you know, but whatever. It's take it with a grain of salt. Whereupon he let out a terrified shriek and ran out of the civil servant's house. A comparable incident was reported from Zambia's Lake Bangwulu swamps during the 1950s, and when the wounded native, who was taken to a Fort Rosebury hospital, was given some paper and a crayon to sketch the creature that had attacked him, the result was a silhouette that corresponded precisely with that of a pterodactyl. My goodness. So there are some accounts, which makes it really interesting, and there's obviously a lot more that I'm talking about here because I wanted to get to a couple of other ones. So again, we have an area that could perhaps hide something that we don't know about. And if it looks similar to a bat, maybe it could be often confused with a bat rather than the other way around. I don't know. It's pretty exciting. And, you know, the more that gets explored, maybe they'll use drones someday to fly around and look at things with infrared or whatever. I think it's entirely possible, in fact, probable that they'll find new species. And one of them might just look like a pterodactyl. I think that's a lot of fun. All right, the next one I have is the Ropen, R-O-P-E-N, the Ropen from New Guinea Island, which is an island north of Australia. Yes, I had to look that up because I'm a dummy, but it's also also the second largest island in the world, apparently, by like landmass. Oh, who knew? Yeah, it's, it's pretty big. So the Ropen is also known as the Demon Flyer. Witnesses say that its underside is bioluminescent. Interesting. That's kind of a strange detail. I haven't seen... Not the, I can't recall ever seeing a bioluminescent cryptid anywhere. And they think that the purpose of this is to attract fish while it's flying over water. Or it could be just to freak out villagers. I don't know. <laughs> they say it has a long tail that's at least 25% of its wingspan. And the wingspan is supposed to be about one meter, which is, so it's not like a huge thing. So it's not, you know, it's a little guy compared to some of the other stuff we've talked about. And of course, it is nocturnal. And just like Ether's Makali um, Mbembe, it's local folklore. Some people speak about it like it's a spirit. Some people say it's like half man, half beast. Other people think it's a real animal. So there's a little bit of um, disparity between this one. They don't know. It's different for different people, I guess. But once again, it's something that could be a bat or a misidentification of a giant bat of some kind. We don't know for sure, but there are a couple of notable witnesses that we have record of. One was the famous biologist Evelyn Cheeseman, who reported seeing baffling lights in the sky that lasted for four to five seconds. And Cheeseman assumed that these this was the cryptid, although it I didn't see anywhere that they saw 
the exact creature, just that they saw lights in the sky. Maybe some locals said, hey, that's the thing we're telling you about. There it is. <laughs> you know, that's it. That's his glowing belly. Um, this cryptid is also sometimes associated with lights or orbs in the sky, which I found very, very interesting because UFOs. Why not? Why not? Maybe these pterodactyls are the pets of aliens who, you know, they let them out to pee or whatever when they're here. <laughs> <laughs> and then they fly back to their ships, you know? And that's why they can't find them anywhere in nature. <laughs> but yeah, that's another one that I thought was a lot of fun. And then I think this is my last one is from Van Meter, Iowa. There was a sighting on October 1903. They saw a strange winged creature that terrorized the town for several nights. It had large bat-like wings, and it smelled bad. It also, this is a detail that I find most interesting, it fired beams of light from its forehead. <laughs> <laughs> totally believable, right? Yeah. So the townsfolk attempted to shoot it, because of course they did. <laughs> <laughs> but the shots apparently had no effect on the beast. A group or angry mob was organized, and they tracked the creature is down. Is that your own words, angry mob? Yeah, I added that okay. little detail. You know, I'm thinking of like Frankenstein or something, you know, pitchforks and whatever. Torches. Yeah. So they tracked it down to an abandoned coal mine where they found not one, but two of the creatures. They opened fire once again, and the creatures ran off, disappearing into the depths of the mine, never to be seen by the villagers again. I want to be clear on that because they were probably seen by each other. Just like I said in a previous episode, you got to be, we got to be specific with our, um, our descriptions here. All right. Now there are some drawings of this thing and they look like kind of demonic to me, a little creepy, but that's, I mean, that's pretty much the story for that one. Obviously there are some details here that seem a little unbelievable, like having a flashlight on his forehead or being immune to bullets. But I mean, let's just take it with a grain of salt and say, what if there really is a large bat-like pterodactyl out there with a flashlight on its head? In and, a coal mine. In a coal mine. Why not? You know, if, if the quokka can exist, so can this. <laughs> All right. So those are the cryptids I had for you this week. I did some flying ones. And I guess it's time to wrap up this episode, Agent Ether. I think this was a great episode. I loved it. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. You know, cryptids, sometimes they're not super believable to me personally, but I still think they're a lot of fun just to say what if. And we have talked about before on, I think it might have been a bonus episode, but there are some cryptids or there are some animals that were originally believed to be cryptids that were then found in nature or, you know, somebody saw it and people didn't believe them and then they eventually found it. So why not? You know, some of these things could turn out to be real. So I think it's a lot of fun to just say, what if, you know? Totally. I agree. All right. Well, thank you everybody so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed the show, you can um, like and subscribe and suggest the show to your friend. And uh, yeah, that's all we got for you this week. All right. Keep it strange.